Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And if you have your Bibles, hopefully still open, you can go back to, or go to uh, 1 Corinthians 3. You might not have to go that far. We have been doing a series on the church. What is the church? And specifically going through various metaphors or analogies that the New Testament gives us to help us understand the church. So, the church is... Christ's flock, Christ's branches, Christ's bride. Now we come to a little bit of a change because we changed the subject. Now it's God's. So this morning the church is God's field from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So let's stand together as we read these verses. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 through 9 standing out of reverence and respect for God's Word. and After I get to verse 9, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Let's read. Hear the Word of the Lord. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Thank you for your eternal word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the course of spending any time in the church or experiencing the ministry of the church, there is one thing that becomes quickly apparent. Ministry 
is messy. Not that we want it to be. Not that we make it out to be messy. But you can't get very far into church life, into the new messianic community that is the church, without seeing that it isn't perfect. It's far from perfect. One author gives the idea that we would like the life of the church to be like gliding across the ice on a pair of ice skates. That is, that it would be easy and smooth and effortless without impediments or obstacles, anything that might slow us down. But ministry is not that way. Especially ministry that's built on relationships because when the human equation is brought into ministry, there is sin. Ministry like that is messy. It's more like trying to navigate the landmine of an asphalt parking lot covered with used and discarded gum on a hot summer's day. Yes, we can agree, though we wish it weren't so. Though we might often be embarrassed by it, ministry is messy. And this is nothing new. It was messy in Paul's day, in the early years of the church. It has been messy throughout church history. It is still messy today. It will be messy until Christ comes. And into this messiness of the church, in Corinth in particular, Paul speaks. He doesn't ignore the mess. He doesn't pretend like it's not there. Or put on rose-colored glasses saying, you know, you, you, people in Corinth, you know, you're really good people, nice people. Paul's letter to Corinth, in fact, might make us blush with how direct and unapologetic he is to confront the Corinthians on their sin. He doesn't coddle them in their sin. He seeks for them to repent of their sin and change. Why does Paul speak like this? Because he knows the Proverbs, particularly Proverbs 25, 11, and 12, which say this, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. It's a beautiful thing for Paul to say what he's about to say. It's valuable and precious and he is calling on them to have a listening ear to what he is about to say to them. Do we have ears to hear what Paul would say to us in these verses? And would we consider it as our eternal benefit and well-being that we would listen to them? That we would see the beauty of Paul's rebuke and reproof of us? It is hard-hitting. It is discipline. It will sting but for the church to be what it's supposed to be. Paul has to address this problem in the church. He begins by calling them brothers or brothers and sisters. Do you see that here? The very first few words. But I, brothers. He's addressing the whole congregation of the church there in Corinth. The brothers and sisters, I'm addressing you. That is, he is addressing those who are saved. He's addressing Christians. Paul does not question that. 
but he could not address them as spiritual people. Before the beginning of chapter 3, Paul has been contrasting the natural person and the spiritual person. If you go back there and look at verse 14, the spiritual person accepts the things of the Spirit of God. The spiritual person possesses spiritual discernment, knowing what is pleasing to God and what is not. The spiritual person has the mind of Christ in 2.16. The spiritual people are those whose lives are directed by the Holy Spirit of God. And this could be a very stinging rebuke to the Corinthian believers who were touting and boasting in the fact that they were spiritual people. Look at how spiritual we are. We are spiritual people. They had elevated themselves to a position of being spiritual when their lives were not in step with the Spirit of God. Beware of those who boast of such a thing. Look at how spiritual we are. Look at how we worship. Look at how great we are. Look at how much we have our lives together. And Paul says, I can't even address you as spiritual people, but only as what? As people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. You think you are so far along. You think you know so much. You think you are super spiritual. It's all an act. You pretend you are hypocrites. They cannot live as people of flesh and think that they are spiritual in any way. Because the flesh and the spirit are in conflict with each other. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What's going on here? These people are acting like they are dominated by their unredeemed, fallen human nature. Paul does not only call them people of the flesh, as if that's bad enough. What else does he say? They are infants in Christ. That is, they are immature. Being immature like an infant, Paul could only feed them with milk and not with solid food. Because they could not stomach it. I mean, that's not an encouraging word, is it? You're immature. This analogy of feeding is used to describe Paul's teaching. They could only bear the simple, basic, elementary principles of the gospel. Paul could not dive deeper into the doctrines of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he's not saying this to their credit. You're babies. You're immature. Acting like people of the flesh. And you haven't even changed. When I was there, you were babies. And look at what it says. And even now you are not ready. Still, you haven't changed. You haven't grown up. You're still not ready for solid food. Why? Because you're still acting like people of the flesh. That is, those who are earthly minded. They listen more to the flesh than to the spirit. 
These are those who hold on to the value system of the world and it controls their values and their lifestyle. So, what's the proof that they're acting like people of the flesh? What does it say? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? It was their jealousy and their strife. Their own pride and egotism had taken over. They possessed a self-reliant attitude of one who puts his or her trust in their own strength and in what is controllable by them. Such jealousy and strife existed among the people when they viewed everything according to worldly standards and worldly values. How was this jealousy and strife expressed? So there's jealousy and strife in the church. How did Paul know there was jealousy and strife in the church? What evidence was there that this was going on? Through team slogans. Some were saying, I follow Paul. Others were saying, I follow Apollos. In fact, that's what he says even back in chapter 1. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Here are these people within the church taking sides, following different teams, and dividing Christ. Is Christ to be divided? No. Why are you here together as a church? Because of Christ. Because you, you're united to Him. Because He has brought you together. The second law of thermodynamics is saying that anything that's left unattended will deteriorate. Maybe we could take that principle and think about it in the church. Here are these people who were attending to the church in a fleshly way and they were causing the church to deteriorate. I know, I'll fix the church. I'll make it what it's supposed to be. And I have my favorite teacher. He'll fix the church. He'll do it. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. When man is living, controlled by the flesh, judging things in a fleshly way by worldly values, it will only rip the church apart and cause the church to deteriorate. Paul had planted the church in Corinth. Apollos had taught in the church at Corinth. And now people were splitting into two camps with divided allegiances and devotions. They were exhibiting human, sinful, and fallen tendency to deform destructive cliques. What's the indictment that Paul is leveling against the church in Corinth? He is saying, you are living like unregenerate, unconverted unbelievers. You are living like people who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Is there anything more scandalous, more absolutely horrifying than a Christian living in a way that denies the very salvation they possess and even more denies the Savior who has purchased them and ransomed them and redeemed them by His own blood? 
How would you respond to such a charge? If, if Paul came to us and he said this, and he said to us, you spiritual people, I couldn't even address you as spiritual people because you are people of the flesh. How dare you make such an audacious claim, Paul? How dare you judge me? Let me tell you, Paul, about all your faults. Don't question the way that I live my life. Don't question my spiritual discernment. Yet all the while, our life is filled with jealousy and strife, doing the exact same thing that the people in Corinth did. And what are they doing? They were attaching themselves to teachers, pastors, missionaries who said what they wanted to hear. Well, Paul says this. Well, Apollos says this. Well, Cephas says this. Well, Christ says this. Well, John Piper says this. Well, John MacArthur says this. Well, R.C. Sproul says this. Well, Alistair Begg says this. Well, Paul Washer says this. I don't care. I care what God says. Those men, I don't think they want you to follow them. And if they do, they shouldn't be on those platforms. Don't you take what they say and say, I follow them. When you do that, you're only being human. You're acting like a person of the flesh. Guess what? The end of time, when you stand before God's judgment seat, you will be held accountable to what God says. Not what any other man has said, but what God has said. They try to appropriate men to give them power, to give them authority, to give them prestige, so they could stay in their sin of self-sufficiency. And when you do this, you become solidified in a worldly value system. You double down on determining successful ministry based on the standards of this world. You feed on jealousy and strife. You perpetuate it. You keep it going. And you think you are justified for causing divisiveness and quarreling within the church of Christ. Woe to those who would do such things. Rather, let us hear this indictment and say, Oh Lord, let this not be the case among us. Let this not be the case with me. With convicted hearts and minds, we repent and desire to turn from destructive jealousy and strife and to be those who are in step with the Spirit, living in the Spirit, having ears. We are ready to hear what the Spirit says to the church. The problem in verses 1 through 5 or one through four. There is divisiveness in the church because people are prideful and are controlled by a worldly value system that they apply to the ministry of the church. And Paul will not let this problem continue. 
He puts this problem before them because he wants them to change. So then, verses 5 and following, Paul is going to seek to dislodge this divisive nature in regards to understanding uh, Christian ministry within the church. So he gives us three truths that will dislodge this divisive nature. You can follow along in your outline bulletin if that's helpful. Number one, God's field grows because of God. (laughs) God's field grows because of God. This is not rocket science, people. (laughs) We are God's field, so that's what he's going to come to here in a moment. God's field is the church. God's field grows because of God. Paul begins verse 5 with two questions. Two questions that are meant to show how what the Corinthians are doing is absolutely ludicrous. Paul is exposing how childishly the Corinthians are acting. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? What's the answer? They are but servants. What can servants do? Who are servants? Do servants have any status? Do servants have any power? It's absurd to quarrel about the superiority of teachers in the church because at the end of the day, only God matters. They are just servants. They are conduits through which God worked to give the gift of faith to the Corinthians. They are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. They each had their particular role. Paul planted. Apollos watered. Both those roles are good. Both of those roles are necessary. But both of those roles aren't sufficient in and of themselves. And it was the Lord who had assigned them to each of their roles. It was not the power or the persuasion of Paul or Apollos that caused them to believe. They believed because God had worked and God had acted through Paul and Apollos. Paul had planted. It said there in verse 6, I planted. This is why we talk about church planting. Paul planted the church there in Corinth and through his leadership and ministry in that area, the church began. Apollos watered the church. He is a faithful teacher seeking to build up and encourage the church through his teaching. But the servants only did what they were directed to do by God. They did that faithfully and sacrificially, but they did not give the growth. The growth happened because of God. He caused the growth. The end of verse 6. But God gave the growth. God is the initiator, the actor, the mover. The planter didn't cause the growth. The waterer didn't cause the growth. It was God and God alone who caused the growth. It is all attributed to His divine power and action and authority. This growth is not solely numerical increase. But think about what the Corinthians are going through here. This growth is also for the maturity of the believer. 
This growth is also for the unification of the community of Christ. Isn't that what the Corinthians needed? Paul is saying, you're acting immature and you're dividing. God's going to give the growth where you grow up in Christ and where you are unified as one body. They needed God to cause the growth. God and God alone is responsible for the success of Christian ministry. Let me say that again. Don't miss that. God and God alone is responsible for the success of Christian ministry. Not how the world defines success, but how God defines success. And guess what? God never fails. In fact, God alone must cause the growth because, this is point two, God's field grows for God's glory. God's field grows for God's glory. Paul goes on to say, don't elevate the servant's work the servants aren't working for their own glory or for their own recognition. The church, being God's field, grows because God causes the growth and He does that so that He might receive all of the glory. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Ministers, servants, come and go. But God's own work continues. And compared to God's role, humans' roles in the work of Christian ministry are nothing of any consequence. Verse 7, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Paul says that about himself. He planted a church in Corinth. Apollos watered the church faithfully. What does he say? Don't give us any glory. Don't account us for anything. Apollos and Paul weren't anything, but God was and still is everything. Paul is as if he's saying, don't follow me. And I would say the same about myself. Don't follow me. Who am I? I am no one. I am nothing. I have no power, no persuasion. I am only a servant. The focus should never be on me, but always on the Lord. He is the only one who can do anything. I can't cause growth. What happens when servants are elevated? What happens when God's role, what he, only He can do, causing the growth, is placed upon the servants instead? Either you will think, I am able to do more than I can do, and the result will be, you crush me. <laughs> if you say, Tyler, we depend upon you to cause the growth... I'm already done. Forget about it. 
or you will be extremely frustrated and discouraged wishing I could do more than I am capable of doing. <laughs> Paul and Apollos were faithful servants, but everything, everything depended upon God. The flourishing of the field is for God's glory. The fruitfulness of God's field is for God's glory. The Corinthians were attempting to separate what is one, what is working in complementary ways. Do you see that here? He who plants and he who waters, they're one. That is, they have the same goal, the same direction. They're trying to, uh, uh, they want to see the same things happen in the church. They are one. Don't divide what's one. They are working in cooperation, in solidarity, in unity towards God's purposes and His planned ends. His servants are working together. Why? For God's glory. So what do we need to realize? What else is going to dislodge this divisive nature from our souls? Number three, God's field belongs to God. God's field belongs to God. God has proprietary rights over His people. The end point is not the work of the servants. They are merely co-workers with one another working for God. So you see that here? For we are God's fellow workers, or we are God's co-workers. What Paul is saying here is saying, Apollos and I are co-workers together. We are fellow workers and we belong to God. We are doing what God wants us to do. The end point, the goal, is the fruitfulness of the field and that's not dependent upon God's fellow workers. That's dependent upon God. You are God's field. We are God's fellow workers, but you are God's field. The church is to consider the fruitfulness of God's field and the work He is doing in her to be the most important, necessary, and cherished work they can promote. What work are we promoting? Promoting the work of the servants or are we promoting the work of God? The church belongs to no other but to God and to God alone for Him to cause the growth as He sees fit. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price, with the precious and costly blood of Jesus, which was shed for us on the cross. We don't have any right over the field of the church. It's God's. It belongs to Him. He says how we are to live. He directs and causes how we grow. He does everything from beginning to end. There is security in knowing that we belong to God. There is peace of mind in knowing we are His and He is working in us. For if we belong to Him, then His field will never be barren. It will never be fruitless. He will never abandon His field. Even when it appears to our eyes and to the eyes of the watching world as if the church is done, as if it's over, as if it won't go on.
God grows the field for His glory that belongs to Him. Are we ever tempted to think that God's field is a barren wasteland? Like you might look at the church and say, what's the field? Can any good come out of this dysfunctional field? What good can come out of these people? I mean, ministry's messy. They're a mess. Turn with me in your Bibles over to Isaiah 32. Finish a few verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, verses 15 and 16 and 17. <laughs> Isaiah 32, 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. This is what Isaiah is looking forward to. There's a sense where it looks as if the people of God are a barren wasteland, as if they are a desert. But God is going to pour out His Spirit from on high. And what happens? The wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And then it's even more. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. How about a couple other verses? Isaiah 35. Verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. How is the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God going to be put on display for everyone to see? Because God is going to make the wilderness and the dry land become an oasis, a fruitful field. This is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even we who were once dead when there was nothing in us, God made alive together in Christ. Our individual lives are a picture of the gospel and our collective life together as God's field, guess what, is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. G.K. Chesterton once said that in church history, over and over and over, it looked like the church had gone to the dogs. It was as if the church had died. It was as if the church was brought to nothing. But what happened? Each time the dog died and the church prevailed. God grows his field 
for His glory because we belong to Him. The church is God's field. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. May we understand it. May we know it. May we hold fast to it. May we be changed by it. And Lord, may these words, if necessary, strike a chord in our hearts. Let there be no jealousy or strife among us. Let us not pick up a team slogan. But let us remember that you are the one who gives the growth. You are the one then who is to be glorified. And may we remember that we, we belong to you. We are not our own. And at the end of the day, it's not about us. Help us to desire your holy ways in this church. Father, if there is someone here this morning who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't belong to Christ, we pray that today, they would see that they are a sinner. That as a sinner they are in desperate need of saving. And that salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. That they would put their faith and trust in Him. That they would repent of their sins. And that they would receive the gift of eternal life. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.